0: The historical narrative of the 20th century is primarily driven by bloodthirsty, immoral dictators, three of whom stand out from the crowd for the sheer breadth of their crimes and the depth of their wickedness. Adolf Hitler is synonymous with evil. His Nazi regime rose to power on an agenda of hatred and hyper-nationalism mixed with enough conspiracy theories to make even a QAnon believer turn their head in disbelief. World War II emanated from the Third Reich's policies, and his Holocaust resulted in two out of every three living Jews stripped bare of their humanity before they were inhumanely dispatched from this mortal world. If we talk in generalities, most historians lay the souls of 30 million individuals at the bloody footsteps of the fear. Last fall, a neighbor's niece was over playing with my children, and she happened to glance over and observe that I was reading a book on Joseph Stalin. She mentioned that she had heard of him in fifth grade, but then proceeded to ask who he was. While all teachers wish it weren't the case, our students' first interaction with new material rarely sticks. She began to tell me that she had been learning about Adolf Hitler this year in her sixth grade class, and she lamented how so many people died because of him. I then wisely, and in an age-appropriate way, pointed out that Stalin, our ally in World War II, was responsible for even more death than Hitler was. Showcasing that sixth grade might not be my forte, she then asked why we were friends with such an evil man, and then proceeded to abandon our discussion in order to participate in a much more interesting water balloon fight. In my high school classroom, we regularly run a classroom debate over which dictator, Hitler or Stalin, was worse. Often, the Soviet man of steel wins the argument. My students are swayed by the fact that the vast majority of the roughly 40 million that died because of Stalin's decisions were his own people. Acts in the Russian Civil War, his genocide against the Kulaks, the Siberian forced labor camps, and various purges of his closest allies through show trials brings Stalin's tally past the German's chosen leader. In his defense, however, his longevity in office did help to contribute to his record-breaking showing. But neither Hitler nor Stalin compare favorably with Mao Zedong in the competition for the largest mass murderer during the 20th century. When one takes into account Mao's policies, such as the Great Leap Forward, to go along with his own forced labor camps and purges of close allies, Mao's death total skyrocketed to 60 million. Hitler has been nearly universally disgraced for his thoughts and actions. Stalin was dug out of his public grave and unceremoniously buried in the Kremlin wall's necropolis. Mao, however, remains revered to this very day, He is even honored with his picture continually hanging over the location of the Tiananmen Square Massacre. The answer for how Mao Zedong got away with the murder of tens of millions of his own people is contained in today's episode. You're listening to Anarchy, Empires, and Other Notable Moments a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is episode three regarding the life and legacy of China's most infamous dictator, Maoism, a Chinese-sized personality cult. Upon his victory in the Chinese Civil War, Mao Zedong took to creating an image as the founding father of China, their George Washington. This phrase isn't used by accident, as a preteen Mao considered America's first president to be among his many heroes from history. From the very beginning of his rule, Mao's political philosophy was an outright lie. According to historian Frank Decatur, Mao hired Chen Boda an ambitious Moscow-trained ghostwriter for his pamphlet entitled On New Democracy. In it, Mao laid out his vision for rule, in which the Communist Party of China would unite all revolutionary classes, including the national bourgeoisie. He promised a multi-party system, democratic freedoms, and protections of private property. It was a fictitious program, but one that held broad, popular appeal. None of it would come to be, as Maoism took firm root in China. Those roots bore great fruit for the rule of China's dictator. Today, the phrase Mao Zedong thought remains enshrined in their constitution. Maoism, a term for the loose ideology that drove Mao Zedong, was obsessed with Three Mountains. Each mountain needed to either be crossed and then left behind, or each had to be bulldozed by the party so that the people could cross into their utopian promised land that the Communist Party had foreordained. I will let Mao explain the first two mountains in his own words. He tells us of an ancient Chinese fable called The Foolish Old Man Who Removed the Mountains. It tells of an old man who lived in northern China long, long ago and was known as the foolish old man of North Mountain. His house faced south and beyond his doorway stood the two great peaks, Tahang and Wang Wu, obstructing the way. With great determination, he led his sons in digging up these mountains, hoe in hand. Another gray beard, known as the wise old man, saw them and said, How silly of you to do this. It is quite impossible for you few to dig up these two huge mountains. The foolish old man replied, When I die, my sons will carry on. When they die, there will be my grandsons. And then their sons and grandsons and so on to infinity. High as they are, the mountains cannot grow any higher. And with every bit we dig, they will be that much lower. Why can't we clear them away? Having refuted the wise old man's wrong view, he went on digging every day, unshaken in his conviction. This moved God, and he sent down two angels who carried the mountains away on their backs. Today, two big mountains lie like a dead weight on the Chinese people. One is imperialism, and the other is feudalism. The Chinese Communist Party has long made up its mind to dig them up, We must persevere and work unceasingly, and we too will touch God's heart. Our God is none other than the masses of the Chinese people. If they stand up and dig together with us, why can't these two mountains be cleared away, Mao finished. Imperialism and feudalism were the first of the two big mountains to Maoism. Imperialism had been a thorn in the Chinese side for the past hundred years. The Chinese are a proud people whose history stretches back to the near beginnings of civilization. Beginning to the mid to late 1800s, however, China had been humiliated by outsiders. It had begun with European nations imposing their will through the Unequal Treaties and the Opium Wars, and then progressed to a ruthless and brutal war with the Japanese as part of World War II. At each step of the way, China had been forced to accept outrageous outcomes— such a scene, their bounty in World War I go to the Japanese, rather than those who had earned it. Maoism's obsession with controlling their own destiny regularly put them at odds with the Soviet Union, who viewed themselves as the overbearing know-it-all parents of Communism, While the CCP regularly took aid and advice from the Soviet Union, they strived to do so as a peer rather than as Moscow's underling. There is perhaps no greater expression of the delicate tug-of-war between the two nations than a fateful meeting between Chairman Mao and Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev. The wheels for this meeting had been set in motion long before it actually happened, but Mao was well known to hold grudges. Mao was first invited to visit the Soviet Union in 1949 as one of many dignitaries celebrating Stalin's 70th birthday. To his frustration, he was barely able to get any alone time with the man he considered to be his peer. Outraged at the perceived slight, he kept to his apartment for the rest of the trip. But each moment in the cold and run-down apartment channeled his inner rage. Khrushchev would be the one to have to deal with the very cold dish of Mao's revenge. The first meeting between the two leaders didn't go well, and Khrushchev wrote in his diary that he felt as though conflict with China was inevitable. But even he couldn't be prepared for his second state visit to Beijing during the hottest peak of summer in 1958. When his plane set down, Khrushchev was greeted in silence. There were no red carpets, no guards of honor, or even hugs from those sent to pick up the Soviet delegation from the airport. The premier was silently taken to a dilapidated hotel that had no air conditioning. Once the meetings began, Khrushchev's overtures for a joint defense agreement were met with rude denials while Mao chain-smoked in front of the Soviet premier, a man who was well known to abhor the smell of cigarette smoke. Mao ended the meeting abruptly and suggested that they meet instead at his private residence the next day. Khrushchev arrived to the meeting to the sound of multiple vicious dogs barking uncontrollably in their frenzied attempt to welcome the Soviet premier. Khrushchev was known to have been terror-stricken of dogs. After getting past the security and canines, Mao came out to personally greet him, adorned in slippers and a bathrobe. Turns out that the meeting was not to be held poolside, but rather in the pool. Khrushchev, like many Russians, had never learned to swim. He was forced to remove his shirt, showcasing a disturbingly rotund belly, and then suffered the greatest indignity a man can face. He was forced to borrow another person's swim trunks. With everything else that was going on, one imagines that the fit of these trunks was either way too small or way too big, both of which are terrible outcomes for a diplomatic meeting in a pool. Unwilling to be cowed into submission by a man whom he viewed as his inferior, Nikita got past the terrifying dogs, removed his shirt in public, and put on Mao's swim trunks in order to get into the pool's shallow end. After all, this was not the first time that Khrushchev had had to suffer embarrassment. Stalin had once forced the man to dance the traditional Russian Gopak. That is the Russian dance where you have to squat, spin, and kick in rapid fashion. The politely plump Khrushchev had about as much chance as I do dunking on LeBron James. The humiliation continued after Nikita lowered himself into the water. Mao constantly urged his opposite to join him in the deep end. He swam laps around Khrushchev both figuratively and literally by speaking in rapid Chinese, despite the fact that he and Khrushchev shared multiple common languages. Eventually claiming to not be able to hear him, he had his servants bring out a set of water wings for the man who just two years earlier had informed the American president that he was 100% willing to nuke the city of London if we did not step in and resolve the Suez Canal crisis. The Smithsonian magazine quotes Li Juji, Mao's personal physician, who believed that Mao was playing the role of emperor, quote, treating Khrushchev like a barbarian come to play tribute. Although not a member of Mencha, Khrushchev knew what was going on, later pointing out his memoirs that, quote, he's a prize-winning swimmer and I'm a miner. Between us, I basically flop around when I swim. I'm not very good at it but he swims around showing off all the while expounding his political views. It was Mao's way of putting himself in an advantageous position. The pool meeting resulted in a Sino-Soviet diplomatic split that contributed significantly to the West's victory in the Cold War. For Mao, the incident was an important moment to publicly declare to other world powers that he was the one who was really in charge. Khrushchev had been forced to become a Chinese punching bag because of an embarrassing act of exclusion that Stalin had unknowingly committed a decade earlier. Historian Frank de attempts to fit it all into the frame of an invincibly self-confident Mao Zedong, who based upon his nation's historical achievements naturally assumed that he was the leading light of communism, making him, and not the Soviet Union, the historical pivot around which the universe revolved. Decatur concludes that the disastrous meeting was a result of Stalin treating him as a caveman Marxist, whose personal writings had been dismissed as futile. That concept of feudalism was the second of the three big mountains that had to be leveled. The feudal medieval economic system had somehow survived into 20th century China. Feudalism locks workers, typically peasants, into a system of indentured servitude. Despite his frustrations with the Soviet Union, he did follow many of their ideas regarding economics. Just as Stalin had before him, Mao sought to aggressively industrialize his nation to bring it more in line with the original vision of Marx and Engels. It didn't go well, and we will talk extensively about the mistakes made during the disastrous Great Leap Forward in another episode. The portion that is more relevant to our discussion on Maoism is what his intent was in pursuing industrialization. In 1957, Mao publicly announced his intention to overtake all capitalist countries in a fairly short time in order to become one of the richest, most advanced, and powerful countries in the world. In order to achieve such a goal, he had to mobilize the peasants, which due to their absurdly high population were the number one card in their hand that China had to play. Rather than using advanced techniques to make farming more efficient and thus force workers off of the farms and into the factories, Mao favored extreme collectivization and a system of fairly odd incentives, such as those that worked the hardest would get to shake his hand. The effect of this seemed to entrench feudalism rather than flatten it, and it ran in the face of what Mao had said in the aftermath of the Chinese Civil War. Namely, that the poor peasants have conquered the country. The poor peasants should now sit on the country. Mao did succeed in his efforts at empowering the peasants over the prior landlord class. Land was collectivized and redistributed. Local courts were set up and run by the peasants who were granted the power to denounce any landlord who had previously treated them unfairly. Class aside, The purposeful murdering of a class of individuals took the life of between 800,000 according to former Premier Zhao Enlai, and 2 to 3 million lords according to Mao's own estimates. These deaths were brutal, and punishments were known to include the eating of excrement as well as having salt water shot directly into their veins. Rather than being appalled at these senseless murders of the Chinese landholding elite, Mao encouraged the violence, believing that the blood on their hands would tie them to him forever, allowing him to continuously foment revolution. These efforts successfully removed the landlords, but the feudal class system still remained, Take Mao, for instance, as he lived in a state of opulence that was unmatched by any feudal land-owning elite. He had an entire cultural troupe ready for any of his whims. One of his favorite acts was to have them strip naked and perform an aquatic ballet for him. Mao had four official wives, the first of whom he ignored, the second of whom he abandoned to be tortured the third of whom he forced to abandon her children before committing her to an insane asylum, and the fourth one whom he left to be arrested. It is unknown how many women he compelled to sleep with him. Mao's personal doctor escaped the United States after the death of the chairman and wrote the equivalent of a tell-all book on the weirdest aspects of the man known as the Great Helmsman. The doctor recalls arguing vehemently with his patient over the subject of Mao's aging. Evidently, the chairman was convinced that sleeping with women would both restore his yang and simultaneously provide him with a sense of hygiene, as he never bathed nor brushed his teeth. The doctor describes in intimate detail the variety of sexually transmitted diseases housed within the insatiable dictator, as well as his sick tastes, which included extremely young girls, all the way to the age of 14. Although the act was considered a bourgeoisie crime, Mao would have women over to ballroom dance at his private residence, before choosing which woman to bed. Every once in a while, a young man was included in the after-party activities. Each of these glimpses into Mao's personal life proves true that the old adage of absolute power corrupts absolutely, but Mao was somewhat above reproach on all of this. The Chinese women, even those who received an STD as a parting gift, viewed the act of betting the chairman as an honorable act. There do not appear to be any scorned husbands who sought out personal revenge. In these stories, although disturbing, there are no accusations of rape, and everyone seemed to know what was happening. Supposedly, he even forced the chosen girl to head to a study in order to read a textbook on the acts that were about to be performed. But not everything about Mao was opulent. His peasant roots had made him distrustful of indoor plumbing. In fact, he was so disturbed by toilets that even at the end of his life, his personal bodyguard was obligated to accompany him into the woods in order to dig a hole for his charge. Apparently, Mao's personal gardens were always well fertilized. Thankfully for this guard, the doctor points out that Mao was constipated for most of his life. Thus, they didn't need to find a new hole each and every day. Still, this was a dictatorship, and decidedly not the utopia that Marx believed would inevitably occur post-revolution. The state's vanguard government with Mao as the focal point remained empowered, enriched, and above the law. Still, the eradication of the landlords eroded the feudal mountains somewhat. 43% of China's cultivated land was successfully redistributed to about 60% of the rural population. Historian Walter Schnedel believes that the violence inherent in China's land redistribution managed to minimize income inequality with the middle class of peasantry benefiting the most in the absence of the class that had previously resided above them. He explains that, quote, most landlords and rich peasants had lost all their land and often their lives or had fled. All formerly landless workers had received land, which eliminated this category altogether. As a result, middling peasants who now accounted for 90% of the village population, owned 90.8% of the land, as close to perfect equality as one could possibly hope for. The third big mountain on Mao's to-do list was identified as Bureaucratic Capitalism. This is perhaps the most disingenuous of all of Mao's mountains, as everything that I said about the private life of Chairman Mao applies here. Bureaucratic Capitalism is the act of government officials using their government positions to enrich themselves. The rise of these capitalist rotors, and their subsequent fall, served two purposes for Mao. First, it provided for him an external threat to his regime. Mao rose through defeating his enemies. After America's disastrous experience in the Korean War, there was no real external threat to his rule. The Americans, under the banner of the United Nations, had been in command of the Korean War, until at least they knocked over the anthill that was the People's Republic of China. The Chinese swarmed onto the Korean Peninsula using a strategy known as Human Wave Attacks. The strategy is one commonly utilized by Hollywood directors making a mindless zombies flick. In real life, the Human Wave Attacks involved the Chinese throwing so much manpower at entrenched American positions, which included machine gun nests, in hope that the enemy would run out of bullets before the Chinese ran out of people. Amazingly, this strategy worked, and the West was forced to settle for a ceasefire rather than a democratically unified Korea. After the war, no American thought that an invasion of China would ever be possible safe from outside threats but handcuffed by their own failures at industrialization and further shackled from adventuring outside their own borders by their own hatred of imperialism, there was no outside force coming to China, nor was there any reason for China to expand outward through military means." The traditional dynastic cycle in China involves a healthy dose of military expansion during the first 50 years of new leadership. In the peace and tranquility of this new Chinese era, Mao's failures were easily visible for all to see. The great leap forward in particular had led to mass starvation throughout the countryside. Mao was able to divert attention from his failures by identifying government officials who, in Mao's mind, were acting as capitalist rotors to mislead the revolution. Thus, every mistake made by Mao was explained away through the presence of bureaucratic capitalists in the system. If there was one thing, besides swimming, that Mao was particularly great at, it was scapegoating others for his own mistakes. This third mountain allowed him to target personal threats to him and have them eliminated from the chain of succession. And this was a common aspect to Mao's purges. So I will only talk about two of them here. First is Mao's actual successor, Deng Xiaoping. He had three appointed successors, all of whom were killed in purges. Deng, however, was the individual that actually succeeded in succeeding Mao. Deng was a veteran of the Long March, and thus one would have thought that his position in China was sacrosanct. But when one creates such enormous problems as the Great Leap Forward, one needs to have a scapegoat of equal proportion to the mistake. After Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms enabled China's recovery from Mao's disastrous economic policies, the military hero was labeled as the number two capitalist roadie. The purge of Deng was the beginning of another failed Mao policy known as the Cultural Revolution. It too will be given its just due in an upcoming episode. Deng was exiled to live the life of a common mechanic, stripped of all the privilege that he had amassed through the revolutionary era. His son's fate was far worse, as zealot Red Guards threw him out of a second story window. The first two doctors refused to treat the young man after discovering who his father was. The third doctor did treat him, but made it clear that had he been brought in sooner, he would have been able to reverse the waist down paralysis that the fall had caused. While in forced exile, armed guards controlled every interaction, visitor, and reading material in Deng's possession. Each day he was forced to read and ponder the book Quotations of Chairman Mao. He was even forced to write his own self criticisms, detailing every mistake, no matter how small. That he had ever made. Still, Deng Xiaoping kept his life and honor. During each and every day that he walked to his assigned job, the other factory workers would move to the side of the road so that he could pass them. Another rising power within the CCP was Lin Bao, Lin was the military officer who required each soldier in the army to both carry with them and regularly read from Mao's Little Red Book. The Book of Quotes put Mao on the same level of the ancient Chinese philosopher Confucius, whose work, The Analects, is also just a collection of philosophical sayings. The idea expanded from the military and soon everyone, particularly the overzealous Red Guards of the Cultural Revolution, were carrying and quoting the work. Memorizing it was seen as a loyalty test for revolutionaries. But as quickly as Lin Bao rose to become a threat to Mao's rule, he was publicly named as his successor at one point, he was purged. Permanently. The general's plane quote-unquote crashed, and upon the announcement of his death, evidence was revealed to make him complicit in a coup attempt that became known as the Gang of Four. Lin was posthumously identified as the fifth member of the four-person gang. These purges helped to maintain Mao in power, and served to shift blame to others whenever something went sideways. And with Mao, they tended to go sideways way too often. So why is Mao still revered in China today? Much of it has to do with his airtight personality cult, and his obsession with ensuring loyalty. Decatur tells us that every individual in China was given a class label, based on their loyalty to the revolution. They were good, wavering, and hostile people. A class label determined a person's access to food, education, health care, and employment. Those marked as hostile were stigmatized for life and beyond, since the label was passed on to their children. This loyalty played out in front of everyone to see. Once in a speech before Mao, his lead general name-dropped Mao more than 100 times, including labeling him as the greatest theoretician and scientist in all of Chinese history. The distribution of badges allowed people to publicly show their loyalty and love for the chairman, and as it was explained to Jennifer Aniston's character in Office Space, there is no minimum amount of flair that is acceptable. The effects remain today. The Financial Times reveals that Mao is only growing in popularity among the people of China. His body, or perhaps a wax version of him, has been personally visited by more than 200 million people. The lines for entrance to the mausoleum regularly are longer than those at Shanghai Disney. And the cult of Mao only continues to grow. During the mid-1980s, which was a time during which the populace had first-hand knowledge regarding the horrors of Mao, fewer than 60,000 had made the pilgrimage to his home village. In 2015, more than 17 million individuals visited, and the threat of a neo-Maoist candidate is recognized as the greatest threat to Xi Jinping's power base as he remains a disciple of Deng's capitalist economic beliefs. In his personality cult, Mao was portrayed as a man of the people, as well as a sort of Chinese Renaissance man. Works of art were commissioned to show him as an everyman, a scholar for some, a field worker for others, a man who was gentle enough to write poetry in a field alone but brutal enough to see a military job accomplished. More than 1.2 billion images of Mao were created and distributed among the Chinese people. Every single Chinese citizen of which there were at that time less than 1.2 billion were required to read and learn Mao's book of quotations. Much of it is standard motivational lines designed to make the former librarian look like a genius. The work, however, is a clear piece of propaganda designed to further the cult of Mao. After all, it doesn't include some of his more infamous quotes, such as, that has less significance than a dog fart, or to read too many books is harmful, or even my favorite, that it is always darkest before it becomes totally black. Anything that threatened the total reverence of Mao was discarded, oftentimes labeled as one of the Four Olds, which needed to be discarded in the name of progress. Rising threats were dealt with internally as Mao had already successfully brainwashed legions of followers through the mandatory revolutionary teachings within the schools. Rather than providing the impetus for change, The youth reinforced the ramblings of an old man who was afraid to use the toilet. They drank from his poisoned fountain of knowledge, justifying the obvious contradictions as some sort of sign that they were inferior and thus incapable of understanding on the same level as Mao. Songs, poems, and intricate operas were all produced to showcase the greatness of the chairman. During the Cultural Revolution, new nicknames, including the Great Leader, the Great Supreme Commander, the Great Teacher, and the Great Helmsman, were all heaped upon Chairman Mao. Although the nation became atheist, loyalty dances dedicated to Mao intimately resembled a form of a prayer, which became required. The dances involved the individual prostrating themselves in front of an image of Mao, As forms of religion were systematically reduced in China, Mao rose to the status level of a deity, unquestioned and all-powerful. Children sang, the east is red, the sun is rising, China has brought forth a Mao Zedong, he seeks the people's happiness. He was also fortunate enough to have survived longer than some of the other dictators that he is regularly compared to. Stalin was khrushchev meaning that all of his crimes were laid bare to the public by his successor. Part of Mao's rationale within his purging was to prevent the same from occurring to his legacy. Shockingly, the inhumane treatment of fellow Long March hero Deng Xiaoping did not backfire on him. Khrushchev had faced similar levels of humiliation at the hands of his overlord, but he got his revenge the moment that Stalin had left this plane of existence. Despite what happened to himself and his son, Deng faithfully maintained the legacy of Mao Zedong while simultaneously updating his economic policies to the times. According to Decatur, this was one of Mao's superpowers, as quote, Unlike Stalin, Mao rarely had his rivals shot, turning them instead into accomplices who were on permanent probation, having to work tirelessly to prove themselves. Mao's complete lack of morals served him in both his rise to power and in maintaining it even after death. In the 1930s, Mao directly ordered mutinied soldiers to be confined to bamboo cages, stripped naked, and tortured before being killed via bayonet. When the peasants rose up and tortured the landlords, he reveled in bloodshed that he intimately knew. A close old friend that tied the people to him via their shared experience as criminals. Chairman Mao did not bat an eyelid when his policies resulted in the starvation of tens of millions of his own people. He merely pivoted to the question of who he could blame for the mistake. Rather than the great starver-in-chief, he was referred to as the Great Lingzhu, a word that they literally made up so that they would have a word that was higher in stature than leader. Propaganda and imagery raised him up on a deified pedestal. Edgar Snow's portrayal of Mao during the Long March suggested to the West that he were an accomplished scholar of classical Chinese, an obsessive reader, a deep student of philosophy and history, a good speaker, a man with an unusual memory and extraordinary powers of concentration, an able writer, careless in his personal habits and appearance. But astonishingly meticulous about details of duty, a man of tireless energy, and a military and political strategist of considerable genius. His crackdown on the media froze this image of a Renaissance man in place. He benefited from the fact that as a poor public speaker, he rarely made public appearances or public speeches. This gave the impression that he was always hard at work ensuring the fulfillment of the people's revolution. As word came out that he was aging beyond what was necessary for the work, he staged an elaborate swimming of the Yangtze River to prove to all that he was in peak condition, or at least that he remained incredibly buoyant. Worse of all, an entire generation of historians took the bait. Historiography is absolutely necessary in the study of Chinese history regarding Mao Zedong. Historians such as Harold Isaacs, Agnes Smedley, and Anna Louise Strong all wrote positive contemporary histories of Mao's China, each explaining that although it wasn't perfect, Maoism was what was best for China. Here's an example of the challenge that historians face in utilizing secondary sources regarding these times. Historian Harrison Salisbury teaches us about the Long March in 1985, stating that the record that it was, quote, a great human epic which tested the will, courage, and strength of the men and women of the Chinese Red Army, end quote. 21 years later, Sun Shuyun had this take on the same event, quote, It was the first time I learned in such vivid detail about the hostage-taking and ransom demands by the Red Army. Shock is too weak a word to describe my reaction. Contradictory quotes like this make it all too easy to cherry-pick high-quality sources to tell the story that you wish to tell. Thus, my final thought here is to be careful regarding the details of Mao Zedong thought as he flipped party leaders and perhaps some historians into becoming accomplices to his crimes. Through this complicity, the leadership that succeeded Mao were forced to become the custodians of his image, for if Mao's cult of personality was pierced, they would all suffer the consequences to their own legacy.